0: Today, we're wrapping up a series that we've simply been calling The Ripple Effect, and we've been talking about this idea, this concept, that, that priorities are like dropping a splash and creating ripples in our lives. Every decision that we make uh, puts us on a path. Every choice has a consequence, and so when we start understanding that our relationships need to be, biblically speaking, our relationships need to be prioritized in the order of importance and significance... And we come to understand the power of the ripple effect the ripple effect simply says that the bigger splash you make in the center the bigger the ripples you didn't think I was going to do all the talking today did you the, the bigger the ripples are, and so you make a big splash in the center, and the ripples flow out from that. If you decide that that third ripple effect out from that splash, that third ring, you, you want it to be bigger, and you say, well, you know what? I'm going to give priority to the third circle instead of the inner circle for a, ha- for a while, and so you drop a rock in the third circle, what happens? Does it, do you get bigger ripples there? No. What you end up with is competing ripples. What you end up with is chaos. And start bumping into each other so if you want a bigger ripple effect then what do you do you make a bigger splash in the middle and uh, and so that's what we've been talking about for the last several weeks now and wrapping up today this idea of making the biggest splash possible in the center and that's why we spent 21 days Uh, in January into early February, fasting and praying, and that's why we gave you a chance to fill out spiritual growth commitment cards. I think we signed well over a 1,000 of those cards, prayed over them, sent them back, and we just believe God's going to do awesome things as we make a big splash for Him in the center, and then out of that, we have this ripple. A fact. Matthew 6:33 is Jesus saying what I just said, just more succinctly. Let's read it together. It's on the screens. Here we go. One, two, three. Go. The thing you should want most is God's kingdom and doing what God wants. Then all these other things you need will be given to you. And so all those ripple effects that we're interested in seeing get bigger. How do you get there? By wanting what God wants. By making God's kingdom first. And so we define the circles in these simple terms. Here we go. Jesus is the center. The next most important relationship you have is your your family. Absolutely. The next important relationship is your spiritual family, the church. And then your next important relationship is your community. And if you want to make a difference in your community, how do you do it? Spend a lot of time in your community. How do you do it? You make a bigger splash in the center. If you want a healthy family, you want all your, your spouse and your kids and your extended family to go to heaven with you, how do you do it? You make a bigger splash in the center. You want a powerful church that's making a difference in the world, how do you do it? You make a bigger splash in the center. And as you do, God begins to expand your impact and your influence uh, to, to accomplish the things that he, in fact, brought the church into existence to do. So that's my sermon for the day. God bless you. Thanks for coming. Uh, Oh, we do need to talk about that outer circle a little bit, don't we? The the outer circle, not in terms of importance, but in terms of priority, is the community. And so I just want to talk about the community for a couple of minutes. In fact, I want to do it two ways. First of all, uh, if if we're really going to have a ripple effect, assuming that we're making that biggest splash possible in the center, if we really want to impact our community, I think there are three requirements, three mindsets that we have to have Uh, before we can do that. And then those of you that know me well know my pet peeve is for a preacher to tell me what I ought to be doing and then not tell me how to do it. So then we're going to get into the what I call the YBHs, the yes but hows. I'm going to give you three things to get you started on that journey. Three requirements, three mindsets to make an impact, to connect with the community, and then three practical commitments that, quite frankly, I'm going to ask you to make today, prayerfully. I'm going to ask you to make those before we leave this place this morning, and I'm going to do it all in 30 minutes. In Jesus' name. Okay, 35. Okay, and we'll let you go in time for lunch. We'll beat the Baptist to the restaurant if you'll work with me, okay? Ready? Here we go. Three requirements if we're going to make a, a, an impact in our community. Requirement number one simply is you've got to embrace god's call to be the church say with me god's call to be the church here's one of the fascinating things about the church and church life is i get asked questions all the time i I, i'm at a stage of my life where i get asked by a lot of pastors this question and a lot of church leaders this question um how do you how do you grow the church pastor jim Tell us how how to grow the church. We want our church to grow. Tell us how to grow the church. And, And they're always surprised, almost to a person, they are surprised by my answer, because my answer is it is not your job to grow the church. It's your job to be the church. You know what Jesus said? Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus said, I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Who do you think is more capable of growing the church? You or him? Yeah. Him. You can do it in your own power if you want to, but you're going to wrestle with the powers of hell if you do. But when Jesus does it, hell can't stop it. Does that make sense? So our job is to be the church. That word church is ecclesia in the Greek. It means the called out ones, the assembly, the congregation. It's our job to be in that relationship with one another and then trust that Jesus will, out of our healthy relationships, that he will grow the church. Of course, that, that begs the question, what does it mean to be the church? And, and, and the simplest answers I know comes from Jesus himself, where he gives us two metaphors for it. Maybe may be familiar to some of you. First of all, Matthew 5, 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth. What, is, what does salt do? What does salt do? Just shout it out to me. What are some things that salt do? Tastes good. Preserves. Uh, you're right. All those things are true. So let's talk about them for just a minute. First of all, I think salt adds flavor. Can I get an agreement in the house? Salt adds flavor. Uh, yeah, I, I had a church member of the church that, that we were at in Virginia whose dad was in his early 90s and, and uh, he had a heart attack. He recovered from the heart attack, but he was still in the hospital. And the doctors had put him on this really strict diet of, of uh, no salt, no salt whatsoever. And, and I happened to be visiting one day when the doctor came in. And the doctor said, uh, Mr. Charlie, uh, I understand you wanted to talk to me. And Charlie said, yeah, Doc, how, how good are you at math? Doc said, well, that's not my strong suit, but I guess I'm okay. He said, because I, I, I need you to do a little math for me. He said, I, I'm 90, I think he said he was 91 years old. And, uh, and he said, so I need you to calculate for me how many days I have left on this earth. And then I need you to calculate for me how many more days you're going to give me if I drop salt. And then I'm going to decide whether it's worth it. <laughs> and the doc said, Enjoy your salt. <laughs> Why? Because food is planned without salt. We love salt. Hear me, guys. I think the same thing is true for salty Christians. We ought to be the most fun people on the planet. I thought I'd get more than a hmm from that. Come on. We get our kicks without the kickbacks. We have a blast, and we don't wake up with a hangover. I mean, come on. We ought to be the most fun people on the planet. We ought to laugh the most. We ought to roll with the punches the quickest. I mean, we're in a sin-cursed world. They're punches, but we roll with them better than anybody else because we got, we got a source. I mean, what is it with all these Christians baptized in vinegar and walking around sour all the time and posting nasty stuff on Facebook, attacking each other over some nuance of theology that doesn't eternally matter? Did I say that out loud? Hear me, guys. We have settled what happens after I die. We ought to be able to live now. We can get off the treadmill of more. You know, i got to have more acquisitions and more accomplishments and more stuff. We can get off that stupid treadmill because we know there's value to life and, and enough value that not only can we enjoy it, but we can give it away. It becomes contagious. We get to add flavor to the lives of the people that are around us because salt adds flavor. The second thing that I thought about, and some of you mentioned, is that salt preserves. It's true that too much salt can be unhealthy, but Jesus was talking when he said those words to first century fishermen in the days before refrigeration. And so you know what they did. They went out during the night, and they caught all their fish, and they gathered them all in, and then they salted them down so that they would stay preserved until they could get to market, and they get in people's houses, because salt So what's Jesus saying when He says we ought to be salty? He's saying our job is to hold back decay. That's our job. So let me ask you, would you say in your best estimation that the world is getting better or wussa? How many say better? God bless no hands. (laughs) How many say wusser? Whose fault is that? I mean, if it's our job to be salt and our job to hold back decay and it doesn't appear to be happening, could it be that we've lost our saltiness? We've got to stop once in a while and ask ourselves the questions. Now, hear me, guys. You can't do anything about other Christians, whether they are salty or not, but you can make a decision about yourself being a salty Christian who not only adds flavor but holds back decay. The third thing I know about salt, some of you mentioned it, is it makes you thirsty. Am I right? It just gets you really thirsty. That's why uh, bars have bowls of of really salty pretzels and salty uh, peanuts and that sort of thing uh, uh, set out all over the place, free for the taking, or that's what Pastor Ryan tells me. I don't really know if that's true. That's just what (laughs) he said. Why do they do that? Because thirsty patrons buy more drinks, and that's where they make their money, right? And so salt produces this kind of, of thirst. i got to ask. i got to move on, but i got to ask. When was the last time your life made somebody thirsty for Jesus? When was the last time somebody looked at you and said, I see something in you that I want. Tell me what it is. And you were able to say, his name is Jesus. The reality is, when Jesus says, You be the church, I'll grow the church, he's saying, Be the salt of the earth. Add flavor, delay decay, produce thirst for him, and if you will do those things, if you will be salty, if you will be the salty church, I will grow it, Jesus said. You can't stop it from growing. The second metaphor, that he gave us is in Matthew 5, 14, when he said, you are the light that gives light to the world. A city that is built on a hill cannot be hidden. So what are some of the characteristics of light? Just shout it out for me. What, what does light do? Illuminates, shows the way. Uh, oh, those are all true kind of things. So let's just talk about those, okay? First of all, it, it dispels the darkness. Light dispels the darkness, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You were chosen to tell about the wonderful acts of God who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Hear me, guys. There is no struggle between light and darkness. Light wins every time. Assuming the wires are in place and electricity is on, you hit the light switch, there is not a 10-minute battle over who gets to win this time. Right? Right? The light comes on and the darkness flees to the corners. That's just what happens immediately because light always wins over darkness. And so Jesus said that's our job is to shine the light in a world that quite frankly is desperate to believe that God really is good. In a world that that has come to wonder if God is so good, why do bad things happen in this world? They need some some light-y, light Christians who will say, you know what, let me shine some light on some of the amazing things that God is doing so that you can see he is, in fact, light. And then the second thing is that light illuminates truth. The older I get, the, the more I need light when I read. You know, even the glasses don't get it done. I got to have a flashlight sometimes to read these things. Why? Because light illuminates what I'm trying to see. And Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. The person who follows me will never live in darkness, but will have the light that leads to life. So put those two things together. Peter said in his letter, our job is to reflect the light to the world that is lost. Let them see Jesus. And Jesus said, I am that light. If you will follow the direction that I give you in that light, you will not lose your way. Again, if we will just commit to be the church, salty, brilliant lights, Jesus will build the church. Jesus will build the church. You can't stop it from growing. So that's requirement number one, That's a mouthful for us to all chew on. How salty am I? How much light is coming from my life right now? What am I going to do about that? But we still have to move to the next level. Requirement number two is you've got to accept the challenge to focus out, not in. I call it a challenge because, quite frankly, it does not come automatically. For most of us, our comfort zone is to focus Inward, not outward. And when we get into a group of people that we're comfortable with, our focus tends to close down to that group of people we're comfortable with. Can I get an amen from anybody when I say it's hard to break out of your comfort zone? And so if we're really going to make a difference in the community, we've got to accept the challenge to focus outward, not inward. Not just focus on what happens in here or even what happens in here, but what needs to happen out there. That's one of the reasons the Holy Spirit inspired Jeremiah to write so long ago, Jeremiah 29 7, do good things for the city where I sent you. Pray to the Lord for the city where you're living because if good things happen in the city, good things will happen to you also. Does it make sense? That's just just real practical kind of stuff. Bless your city because if your city's doing good, you're going to do good. If your city's struggling, you're going to struggle. Struggle. And so part of our assignment is to recognize, guys, that that the church is the only organism on the planet that does not exist for the people who are in it. Hello, are you out there? It exists for the needs of the people who are not yet here. That's why we exist. Put that another way. God didn't start the bridge to grow big, have fun events, provide a safe place for our kids, that kind of stuff. Nothing wrong with that. Praise God for every bit of that. But none of it can be the reason for our existence. I said to our staff across the locations just recently, I said, guys, please tell me, we're talking about some of these issues. Go into all the world and make disciples. And I said, please tell me, I have not spent the last 45 years of my life counting cash, chairs, and cars. There's got to be more to it than that. Got to be more to it than that. It's got to be about not church growth, but about community development through the vehicle of the church that God brought into existence. When we get that, when that hits us, that God's called us to be the church, salt and light, and then to turn our focus outward, not inward, we begin to make a difference in the world and I'm here to tell you I believe with everything in me that God brought this church into existence and I believe that he's given us the strength that we have and I believe he brought you to be a part of it because he wants to do something in eastern North Carolina and beyond and he wants us to do it with everything in me that's what I believe the sad reality is that is that seems so common sense I mean it seems obvious right so many needs around us, of course that's obvious, but something has changed in the church as a whole in my lifetime. Albert Einstein, who's always been reputed as the the greatest genius of of modern times, smartest man that ever lived. I'm sure there are plenty that were just smart, but he got famous for his smarts. In World War II, he's quoted as having said, being a lover of freedom, when the Nazi revolution came, I looked to the universities to defend it knowing they had always boasted of their devotion to the cause of truth. But no, the universities were immediately silenced. Then I looked to the great editors of the newspapers, whose flaming editorials in days gone by had proclaimed their love of freedom, but they, like the universities, were silenced in a few short weeks only the church einstein said stood squarely across the path of hitler's campaign for suppressing truth i never had any special interest in the church before but now i feel a great affection and admiration for it because the church alone has had the courage and persistence to stand for intellectual and moral freedom i am forced to confess that what i once despised i now praise unreservedly contrast that with George Barna's research Barna Research Group studies American religious thought and church health he writes the church because the church is failing to be the church with an outward focus it's losing ground in phenomenal numbers I don't know if you know this and I don't want to depress you but it's reality that we have to face, less than 100 million Americans ever attend church, 37% maybe. On a given weekend, less than 20% are in a Bible-believing, Jesus-centered church. 91% of non-Christians, when surveyed, said that they consider the church to be insensitive to their needs. They don't care anything about what's going on in my life The result of that, Barna says, the church has lost its place at the table of cultural influence. We've gone from that center of society to the edge of society where people call preachers crooks and Christians crazies. How do we turn that around? Is it too late to turn that around? I'm here to tell you it is not too late to turn that around, but churches... Cannot keep doing what they've been doing and expect to get different results from it. Churches can't keep hunkering down and singing songs like, Hold the fort, for I am coming, Jesus back and still. Love that old hymn of the church, but that's not true. The church is not a fort that we hide in while the enemy attacks us. That's never been the goal of the church. Christians can't keep getting frustrated by the fact that unbelievers are acting like unbelievers. (laughs) You can't expect an unsaved person to act like a served person. They don't have the Holy Spirit to convict them. And yet we get really mad when they act that way. What's wrong with you that you don't love Jesus? You know, that kind of stuff. Church leaders cannot embrace the call to be the church and accept the challenge to think outside instead of inside while they program and structure and budget and organize themselves for the sake of the already saved. Can't do it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. I'm sure if you've been in church very long, you've heard that verse used for us as individuals, but it's true for the church too. What's Paul saying? He's saying that inwardly focused Christians are self-seeking. Outwardly focused Christians are self-sacrificing. Inwardly focused Christians expect to get. Outwardly focused Christians expect to give. Inwardly focused Christians say, I have choices, I'm a consumer. Outwardly focused Christians say, I have commitments, I am a producer. Sure, the outwardly focused Christian has needs, and yeah, we, we help each other, and we pray for each other, and we encourage each other, and, and all of those things are true, but, but we do that so that we are healthy enough that we can then turn our focus outward to the people around us that have so many desperate needs. A- a- am, I, am, am I making sense this morning? That's, that's why the vision statement of our church is giving life by giving Christ. It is not uh, holding on to life as we hoard Jesus for ourselves. How's that for a vision statement for a church? (laughs) Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't stop it. Your job is to be the church and turn your focus outward, not inward. When you do, there's a third requirement. We've got to engage the community like Jesus engaged the community. We've got to engage the community like Jesus did jesus gave his personal mission statement in luke chapter 4 verse 18. let's read it together here we go it's on the screens the spirit of the lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor so his mission statement was to preach the gospel done is that it no there's more to it than that let's go to the next one he sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives the recovery of sight to the blind keep going To set at liberty those who are oppressed. There are two major parts to the mission that Jesus Christ said he came to earth to accomplish and ultimately passed on to us. There are two major parts. Do you see it? I want you to get it because the sad reality is I see an awful lot of Christians and an awful lot of churches that pick one or the other, but not both. Some are on street corners with bullhorns saying turn or burn die and fry while we go to the sky with no thought whatsoever to how that impacts the people around them i know some guys i've had conversations with guys that that is their badge of honor to stand on the corner and, and yell and 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 i've seen videos where christians walk up and say dude you're killing me man i love jesus too but you're killing me because all you're doing is driving these people away well uh, my job is to preach the good news to the poor. But there's a second part, isn't there? Other people are building hospitals and homeless shelters and doing all kinds of really cool stuff for for hurting people, but they never get around to talking about their need of salvation. They never get around bringing them to to a faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus understood the mission was to bring good news, but he also understood that sometimes people have needs that have to be met before they can hear the good news. Sometimes their stomachs growling so loud they have to be fed before they can hear what you're saying so those two things go together. Our mission is not just to feed them physically, and it is not just to preach good news to them. It's to feed them physically and, and establish a relationship so that we can then, in fact, tell them the eternal good news of Jesus Christ, which is why I adopted a slogan from my own life uh, quite some time ago now that I, share, I thought I'd share with you and, and, and maybe even suggest, if I may be so bold, that you adopt it for yourself. Bring it up for me, would you? Here we go. Good deeds, goodwill, good news. What that simply means is I'm going to do good deeds. I'm going to help people around me. I'm going to do it in such a way that I can establish a relationship, goodwill, with this person so that in due time I'll have the opportunity to tell them the good news. That's the trajectory, that's the plan. Not just good deeds in and of themselves, not just goodwill in and of itself, not just good news in and of itself, but good deeds that establishes goodwill that leads to the presentation of good news. Uh, let me illustrate it this way. If somebody were to walk up to me right now and say that is an ugly shirt, how do you think I'm going to respond? It depends entirely on the relationship that I have with the person who said it. Frankly, if one of you that I haven't met yet were to walk up to say, that's an ugly shirt, I would probably say something like, oh, uh, well, then don't buy one for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) If Kim were to say, Jim, that's an ugly shirt, I'm changing shirts. (laughs) Why? Because she's earned the right to speak that truth into me in a way that I have no choice but to listen because good deeds have established goodwill that has led to me receiving the good news from her. In fact, James says it this way. The Apostle James uh, says that telling good news without good deeds is kind of like a lawyer arguing his case to a jury. And the jury might listen to his eloquence, and they may say, wow, this this guy's really eloquent. But eventually they want some evidence. Eventually they want to see some proof. Which is why I think Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have a honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker on your car. That's not it. If you have love for one another. Hear me, guys. Jesus gave the entire unbelieving world the right to decide whether we are followers of Jesus Christ solely on the basis of how we love So an unbeliever's paraphrase of that verse might be something like, don't tell me how much you know until you've shown me how much you care because I might not be able to hear you until you do. If we want to make a real difference, if we want a ripple effect that flows out of a big splash in relationship with Christ, not just in our families, not just in the church, but in the community where he planted us, we have to be the church, salt and light. We have to focus outward, not inward, And we have to engage the community like Jesus did, understanding both parts, good news and good will, good deeds, so that we can share Jesus with them. So let's shift gears. Got a few minutes with you. Let's just unpack this fairly quickly. What are we going to do about all that? I mean, it's interesting information. Some of you are going, boy, that makes sense. Some of you are saying, I don't know if I get that or not. Well that's that's the preacher's job, it's not my job. I mean whatever is going on in your mind right now, maybe you're thinking about what are you going to do for brunch today or lunch today. I don't know, but whatever's going in your mind right now, bring it back in with me for just a second and let me show you the practical steps, three simple practical steps that that I'm going to challenge you to take. I've challenged myself in preparing to share this message with you. Uh, that i believe will make a difference not just in your life not just in your family and in the church but in this community where he's planted us three keys first of all you need to identify a friend identify a friend matthew chapter 28 verse 19 go and make followers of who all people in the world think about it right now your job is to make followers of jesus christ of everybody in the world everywhere Anybody feeling overwhelmed yet? There's about six billion people that need Jesus right now. Is feeling overwhelmed yet? Here's the problem. We, we, we hear that and we receive that and it makes sense, but we get so overwhelmed at the idea of it that we just shut down. So, well, I can't reach everybody. What was what that talking about? Hear me. Jesus didn't mean one person should reach all. He meant all should reach one. If every Christian, if every follower of Jesus Christ would decide I'm going to reach one person for Jesus. And then they, when they find Christ, decide I'm going to reach one person for Jesus. We could change the world in a generation. But it becomes one heart to a time, one relationship to a time, one community to a time. And so my challenge to you right now is narrow your focus down. We're gonna do the Great Commission, but every one of us is gonna narrow our focus down to one person, and I call that person a friend. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, most, if not all of you in this room right now, are not my friends. I'm sorry, you're not. You're my brothers, you're my sisters. We got the same heavenly father, we got the same elder brother, we are brothers and sisters, we's fam, okay? We's fam. If I introduce you to someone, and I've been doing this for years, so I, this is serious, and not just sermon fodder stuff. If I introduce you to, to somebody and I say, hey, let me introduce you to my friend, guess what I just said to you? This is somebody that I care about. I'm not sure about their salvation. Well, guess what you do, you do now? Now you just partnered with me and you start praying with me right there in that moment that I'll be able to build a relationship with my friend to the point that I can introduce my friend to Jesus And it may be good deeds, good will before I get to good news, but you're starting to pray with me, and you're starting to interact with my friend on that basis. Does that make sense? At Community Church, when we built the new sanctuary, uh, we had so many people uh, that were identifying their friends. We took a Sunday before we put the carpet down, and we said, come on in, everybody write your friends list on the floor. There are 15,000 names on the floor of the worship center at the church in Chesapeake. Well, we did that about a year before the Princeton campus built their sanctuary, and Farrell said, I like that. There are thousands and thousands of names on the floor in Princeton. So, Pastor Ryan, we're going to tear all the carpet up this week. And uh, next week you're going (laughs) to not. But we are going to start writing those names in our hearts. Understand that the journey for somebody to come to Christ quite often, especially in these days and times, uh, is, is is not a rocket ship. In fact, the navigators terms it type A unbeliever and type B unbeliever. A type A unbeliever is somebody that's open to you. They like you, but they're not open to your faith. I mean, they'll talk to you about golf or bowling or working out or whatever it is that you enjoy doing. They'd be glad to have a conversation with you about farming or, or the workplace or whatever. But the minute you bring up church and Jesus, they kind of go, mm, yeah, yeah, I got to run, got to go. They're not ready for that, but they are ready to build a relationship with you. So your goal in building this friendship, if it's a friendship with a type A unbeliever, is you build a genuine friendship, and your goal is not to get them saved. Your goal is to get them from type A to type B where they're open to you and they're open to your faith, where they begin to say, what's the deal with you? Tell me a little bit about your relationship with Jesus. And you do that by identifying a friend and looking for common ground. One of my favorite friend stories, I've been doing this all my life and all of my adult life at least, and one of my favorite friend stories is is Mark Saffirstone. He's actually the first Jew that I ever led to the Lord. Uh, Mark's wife had a Catholic background, and she came to our church, and and uh, and she was excited to find us. And she came to Christ pretty early on. And uh, and I ran into them in a grocery store one day, and she introduced me to Mark. And uh, and uh, and he identified himself immediately. He said, "I'm an upstate New York Jew. I'm not sure I even understand what's going on in Sharon's life, but uh, but she likes it, so it's okay by me." And uh, I found out later when I walked away, he said to Sharon, "You know." I was in, I think, Dockers and deck shoes and no socks. And he said, any preacher that'll go around with no socks, I think I want to know that guy. (laughs) Whatever it takes, I don't care, you know. And so I called him one day. He was a PhD in human resource development with George Washington University. And we were at a time at the church in Chesapeake that, that we were growing past my capacity. I grew up in Bladenboro, North Carolina, which is a town smaller than way smaller than this church. I mean, you know, less than a 1,000 people in Bladenboro. And so here I am in Chesapeake leading this church that's growing close to the town I grew up in, and I have no idea how to organize it. I have no idea how to have a staff meeting. I have no idea how to hire and fire staff or lead staff or set goals. And so I said to Mark one day, we just kind of struck up a friendship, and I said, Mark, would you teach me? I'll buy you lunch once a week, once a month, whatever you've got. If you'll just teach me how to do leadership. I mean, human resource stuff. And he said, yeah, man, I'd love to do that. And so we started meeting at least once a month, sometimes twice a month. And, uh, and he, would, he taught me how to do an agenda for a staff meeting. He taught me how to have an agenda on the front end, action steps on the back end. He taught me all kinds of stuff that I'd never heard of before. He taught me how to lead a church that was growing past my current uh, capacity. And every now and then in one of those lunches, sometimes breakfast. I would say, now, Mark, you know, I, I do have another hope out of all of this because we had become really good friends. And he said, yeah, 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 I know. So well, I'm still going to say it. You know, but I'm still going to say it. I really want you to meet the Jesus that I love. And he'd say, yeah, yeah, I got it. And he would say, now, when you pull your staff meeting together, you need to, and we just go right back to that dialogue. It was 11 months into that friendship. There's, we're sitting at breakfast one morning and, and Mark, out of the blue, said, so what do I have to give up in terms of my Jewishness to become a Christian? And I said, nothing. You, you trace your heritage to Abraham by blood, and I trace it by adoption. You just recognize that Jesus is the Messiah you've been looking for all these years. And he said, that's it? I said, yeah, that, that's it. And he said, I can, I can still have lox and bagels for breakfast? And I said, I cannot imagine why you would want to, but yeah, I guess, if you want to. He said, I can still go to the high holy days in the synagogue? I said, well, Jesus did. I probably should, too. <laughs> Won't you take me some time? And he said, where do I sign? He gave his life to Jesus Christ that very next Sunday. It came after a very long time of being genuine friends and that friendship became a bridge that united us now here's the challenge the challenge is that within a couple of years of being a follower of jesus christ we don't really have any unsaved friends anymore don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. We hang out with the people from church or in our small group. If we need a plumber, we say, anybody know a plumber from the church? We need electricians. Have we got any electricians in the church? I mean, we, we we find the other Christians in the workplace and hang out together before you know it. And there's a camaraderie that comes. I get it. Nothing wrong with that. But if we're not careful, we will become inward focused and not outward focused. And did I say to make a difference in the community, we got to focus out, not in? Did I mention that? Did we talk about that this morning? And so the second step in your journey may well be to pray for God moments. Pray for God moments. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 and 6 When Jesus saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion on them because their problems were so great and they didn't know what to do or where to go for help. The harvest is so great and the workers are so few. Pray for more laborers, he said. I want you to get the spirit of what Jesus was saying in that moment. He looked out across the crowds, and he didn't take on a, what's wrong with them people? They don't even recognize that I'm Messiah. He didn't take on a frustrated kind of thing. What did he take on? He took on a compassion. He took on a brokenness. I got to ask, you sit real still, nobody will know the answer for you, but I got to ask, when was the last time uh, somebody pulled out in front of you On 70, and your first thought was, oh, Jesus, what's going on in that hurting soul's heart? Okay, how many of that was your second thought after you (laughs) signaled to him that he was number one? I mean, the second thought was, oh, Jesus, what's going on? Because you know hurting people hurt people. So that's what Jesus did is you just start looking at the crowds. You start looking at the people in the mall. You start looking at people at the workplace in restaurants, and you pray, oh God, open my heart to see the hurts that are going on here. Open doors of opportunity for me to connect with them on a, on a friend level, not a preach level, a friend level. Give me the wisdom to know how to show your love to them. You learn to watch for those God moments, and I promise you, if you will listen Pay attention and pray they will come. I was in Applebee's with a pastor friend of mine not too long ago, and uh, the lady that was waiting on us was doing, quite honestly, a really, really poor job. She messed up the order. It took forever for her to get it to us. It was cold when it finally got there. Uh, She didn't refill our, our beverage glasses at all. I mean, it was just really tough. And my first reaction being the spiritual giant that I am is, Where did they find this woman? Come on, give me a break. She's in the wrong business, you know. I just, and then I got convicted because I knew I was going to preach this sermon. And uh, (laughs) and I said, Lord, help me to see what's going on with her. I'm serious. I just began to pray this quietly. As we were leaving the restaurant that day, she happened to be, I don't believe in in coincidences, she was in a kind of a, a quiet corner of the restaurant sorting uh, setups and I just looked up beside her and I said uh, are you okay and she turned around with this kind of stressed look in her face and she said no I am really struggling this is my first week on this job and I, I don't know if I'm even capable of learning all this stuff but I need this job so bad and so I'm just, I'm just really stressed right now and I said I'm so sorry this is hard for you would it be alright if I pray for you She started to cry, and she said, I would love that if you would. And I prayed for her in Applebee's in Smithfield. And then when I finished that conversation, I said, Pastor, come here. (laughs) Pastor of the local church, let me introduce you to Pastor Allen. And I introduced him for him to follow up on her. Hear me, guys. If you will get compassionate, make that your your go-to response to hurting people around you. God will give you those moments. And along the way, he will give you somebody that you say, you know, that clicked. I think I like that guy. I'm going to invite him to play golf with me. I'm going to invite him to go work out with me. I'm going to find out what he likes to do, and I'm going to do that too. I'm going to find out make sure he's not a Duke fan, and I'm just going to. Sorry, Ryan. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Identify a friend. One at a time is best. Don't, well, I've got a whole list of friends that I'm praying for. Cry, fine. Pray for them, but you can't build the kind of relationship I'm talking about with a list of people. Pick one at a time. I've had, uh, forgive me if this sounds like I'm drawing focus. I'm just trying to make a point. I've had the privilege of praying with, I've got on record, close to 15,000 people to receive Christ over the last 47 years. I do not know most of their names. I've had 23 friends and I know them all and their lives. Why? Because I helped a friend find Jesus. Your life changes when you get that. And then number three, and we'll close, invite them to church. That's it. Yeah, invite them to church. had a guy call me one time uh, from grocery store. He said, Pastor Jim, I just met this guy in the grocery store, and I think if you'll call him, he'll give his life to Jesus. I said, well, why didn't you tell him the good news? He said, I didn't know what to say. I said, well, then just bring him to church Sunday. I'll do my best. People tell me sometimes I have the gift of evangelism, and I say, no, I don't. I have the gift of harvester. You have the gift of evangelism. You're the one planting the seeds and watering them and cultivating it, and all I do is just close the deal. I'm not I'm a deal closer. That's all I am. You're, you're the evangelist. So bring them to church, and here's what I know. You tell me if it's true, if you're part of the bridge family, here's what I know. You bring a friend to the bridge, they're going to have a good experience. They're going to come away and say, well, those guys are cool. They're going to say something like, I didn't know church could be like that. That's kind of neat. Yeah, I think maybe I'll come back. There's something different about what God is doing. It's not just because of our music. Lots of people do this style of music. It's not because of our preaching. There are a lot better preachers than me and Ryan and others that are on staff here. That's not what it's about. There's something that the Spirit of God is doing in this house that draws people to the presence of God. And when we get them into the presence of God, then He will be the deal closer on our behalf. Easter's coming April 1st. Statistically, people will say yes to an invitation to Easter when they will say no 51 weeks a year otherwise. So we're going to put some tools in your hand. Over the next couple of weeks, you're going to get some invitation cards to give out. I want you to give them out like candy. I want you to give them to everybody that you can think of that would possibly be interested in coming to church on Easter Sunday. We're going to pack this house. We're going to pack all of our locations that day. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to do these steps. I'm going to ask you to, do, to identify one friend. I'm going to ask you to do what you can do over the next six or eight weeks to build a relationship, at least enough of a rapport with that friend. Remember the definition of a friend? You care about them, but you're not sure they're saved. Build enough of a rapport that you can actually say to that person, I'd love for you to come to Easter service with me, sit with me. I've got a place for you there. And I believe God will do amazing kinds of things. might be scary might be terrifying to speak up and say something in that moment, but here's the image that I want you to keep, and I promise I'll, I'll shut up. I've said that two or three times, haven't I? I'm going to, I promise. Can you tell I'm passionate about this subject? Uh, Imagine that you're in a restaurant and you're in the outer area of the restaurant and and you can tell that there's a private room in the back and, and there's a group in there and they're having a blast. They're laughing and they're talking and you can tell they're having a really good time and then you realize that a fire has broken out in the kitchen and it's spreading into the restaurant. You know that you have time to get out. All you gotta do is get up, walk out the door, you're fine, but those people in the back room don't know about it. They're still laughing and talking. They don't have a clue and if they don't get a warning soon, they're gonna be trapped. What do you do you walk to the door of that private room and you kind of go you know they're having such a good time they're talking to each other how do i break into this i mean you know and, and if i say hey hey everybody look at me for a minute they're going to get mad at me they're going to tell me to shut up they're going to say who are you uh, all that you know I, but here but if i don't say something the fire is coming so I'm going to do it." And you break through the door and you say, hey guys, hey everybody, sorry, don't mean to break up your fun, but the place is on fire. If you'll follow me, I'll show you the safe way to get out. Break out of your comfort zone. Be the church, salt and light. Make a decision that I'm going to be outwardly focused, not inwardly focused, and then approach hurting people around you the way Jesus did with this compassion and watch God do Amazing kinds of things through you, it will change your life. My phone rang just a few weeks ago. Did not recognize the voice on the end of it at first, and uh, he said, "Do you know who I am?" I said, "Ah, "You know, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't recognize your voice." He said, "This is Lisker, Amen. You remember Lisker and Edna?" And I just, you know, just stopped dead in my tracks in that moment because Edna and Lisker were a young married couple when I pastored my first church before Kim and I had even met. They didn't know Jesus. I found out that Lisker enjoyed working on cars, and I did too, and so uh, I asked him if I could come by and work on his car, and he'd work on mine, and so we spent months just working on each other's cars, putting brake pads on and silly little things like that, And in the course of that year, Edna and Lisker gave their lives to Jesus. I bought them their first Bible. I was 22, 21, 22 at the time. He called me just a few months ago. I had not heard from him in 43 years. He said, we were moving, and we found the Bible you gave us. And we just wanted to call and say, thank you. We had to search and search to find you. We're so glad we did. And I started to cry and said, I'm so glad you did too. This is a challenge. This is a break out of your comfort zone kind of thing. But I'm telling you it will change your life if it'll make your MO, make it your MO in life. Can I pray for that now? Would you pray that prayer with me now? Father, thank you. We can't reach all people everywhere. We're thankful that's not our job. But if you'll give me the opportunity, Lord, I'll do my part to reach one. I'll be salty. I'll do my best to reflect your light. I will look outward, not inward. I will start scanning the horizon for people around me that are hurting. I know that everybody's hurting somewhere. If I listen long enough, I'll pick up on it. And then when I find a hurting soul, even if they're acting out, I will look on them with compassion like you did. Father, thank you for the people that are praying right now. And thank you for the people that are going to come to know you because of the commitments that are being made in the quietness of this moment. I pray simply that you would show us a friend. Maybe someone will come to mind immediately. Maybe it's, it's a matter of prayer. We pray for God moments in the days ahead, but show us a friend. When we do, Lord, help us to build a friendship, a real, genuine, caring relationship one that is strong enough for us to share good news, and if it's no more than invite them to church on Easter, give us that much favor. Trust that you're going to do the work in their hearts. In Jesus' name.